Our world is weary. Our world is weary. There are marriages that are under tension. There are broken relationships. There's all sorts of people cheating on one another in the workplace or in their lives. There's crimes against the vulnerable, such as women and children, refugees, murder, idol worship, wicked leaders and friends. What I've just listed, all of that is just in the family tree of Jesus. So before we even start talking about 2022, that, that whole list, is here in Matthew 1. Let's read Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Our world is weary. The world that Jesus is born into is weary. It's weary from the problems that plague us. And a weary world has waited ages for this. Literally, ages. That's why there's a genealogy at the start of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is writing a genealogy not just so we have an interesting family tree, but to show us that this from the beginning has been something, Christmas is something, the advent, the coming of the Christ, the world has waited for ages. The word Christ is a Greek New Testament word. It means anointed one. It is the same word that the Old Testament word Messiah is entitled for. It's, it's anointed one, it's king. We've waited for a king, king of the humans, saviour of the humans. And as Matthew writes his genealogy, he's making a big point for us to see. Not only have we waited ages for this, but this is the one, and we were in a Genesis series recently, this is the one. He particularly, he is the serpent crusher and he's here. Did you notice there in that genealogy, there's a, there's a few things to notice, not just how long it is and how literally ages it is. It's 14 generations in groupings. And there's a footnote to say that perhaps this, it's skipping a few people, but it's wanting to say, encompassing all those generations since Abraham, here is the one we've been waiting for. We just left Genesis 12 last week. So if you're new with us, we've been in the Genesis series. And from Genesis 1 through to 12, we've been seeing promises right back at the fall, right back at the garden when we were, by our rebellion against God, excluded from paradise, there is a promise, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the offspring is going to come. Born of a woman, the saviour of the humans will come. And he'll be the serpent crusher. And then Abraham was given that promise. Remember that promise? Abraham, through your family, here is this elderly couple who can't have kids at this stage of their life. He's 75 years old and he's promised, you will have a child and through your little family will become a people, a nation, who will live in the promised place, and that will bless the whole world. And so we see Matthew picks up, he says, this is, this Christ, this child, is a son of Abraham. Verses 2 to 6. We also see this Christ, this Messiah, is the son of David. The promises are then given to David. Through you, David, will come a king. The promise is picked up at Genesis 3.15, he's a serpent crusher. Genesis 12, he's a blessing for the whole world. To David, he's the king, the forever king. And the promises are being fulfilled in the Christ. But notice this in this genealogy, this family tree. There's not just good things happening here. There's terrible things happening. We read in verse 11, the promises of God, even will come true when everything else is coming undone. Do you ever feel that in life? Do you feel like, well, the promises of God seem far off for me. They don't make much difference to my life here and now. Sure, they came true for 
Abraham and Israel, and I can see how theoretically it blesses the whole world, but what's it got to do with me? Because things come undone for me. Well, look at verse 11. We let this so easily just wash over us. But we see in Jesus' genealogy, in his family tree, the promises still were coming true even when there was a deportation to Babylon. We read that and we think, well, that's an interesting piece of history. And I think sometimes, even in the church, we don't read much about the exile. We don't know much about the exile. We don't know much about biblical theology and the significance of, here is a promise, Abraham, you'll be a people in a place blessing the whole world. They're in that place. There's a people, there's Israel. They keep sinning. They keep ignoring God. They worship other things instead of him. They live for themselves. And God says through his prophets, Please turn to him. Please turn to him. Please turn to him. Wake up, people. Wake up to the promises of God. And what do they do? They ignore their preachers. They're too enamored by the things of the world. All that glistens is gold to them, but not the promises of God. And in the end, God says, well, that's it. You can't be in the promised place. And he exiles them to Babylon. The northern kingdom Israel goes first, and Judah, which is a divided kingdom, goes next. We read verse 11. Verse 11 is a summary of everything that is trauma and turmoil for a people. You can't live here anymore. You're going to a foreign place to again be slaves. But are the promises of God... Stopping? No, they're still coming true. Because we read after that, there's a return from exile. We read in verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, and it continues, the promises of God are still coming true for a weary people in a weary world. Then verse 17, there's the summary. Jesus is born into a world from Abraham to David, from David to deportation, from deportation to the time of the Christ. He is here and we have waited ages for this. We celebrate that, we remember that with a season called Advent. Advent means coming. But it's not just the first coming and we'll see in our benediction at the end of our service this morning, we're also waiting now for the second coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Why do we pray that prayer? Why is it the last words in the New Testament are a prayer? The last words of the Bible are a prayer of waiting. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because Christmas is waiting. Christmas is a reminder. Life is still hard. Look, we look forward to Christmas, don't we? We look forward to the traditions, the gifts, the family getting together. But let me tell you, and I've got a pretty nice family. Even when our family get together, the wider family, there's always this sinking feeling. That was hard. That was never enough. It's not what I was promised. I was promised a Christmas. The advertising on television told me if I went down to Maya and bought those decorations and if I just had those right uh, uh, ingredients and, and produced this right Christmas festivity... It would just be brilliant. And it just wasn't. Every time. I got sold a a dud. It's never enough. Because that's not the thing we're waiting for. 
What we are waiting for is what they waited for is actually to save us from the big problem in our lives, sin. The very thing that gets into our Christmas family gatherings is sin. The very thing that disappoints me with all its promises and takes it away is sin. It's my sin. We've waited ages for someone to fix that. We've waited ages for this. This is that genealogy. This is why it's here. But there's also one more reason. There's one more reason that this genealogy is here. One more reason to show we waited ages for this. Because in this genealogy we see dysfunctionality, even in Jesus' family. I want you to notice as you read through that genealogy, and it's easy for us to come to biblical genealogies like this and just read it and we just sort of glance over it. They appear lots in the Bible, don't they? But I want you to notice as you read over it, it's interesting, in a day and age in the ancient Near East when genealogies were written, particularly about the male line, so it's the man, it's his line, his family, did you notice how many times women appear in this genealogy? And not just, not just named for just, well, they happen to be there, we know that was you know, such and such as mum, but the women named here have very interesting backstories. Did you notice that? We see Tamar in verse 3. Tamar goes through trauma. If you get to know Tamar, she goes through trauma and horrific things to even have a place in her family. Then there's Rahab. Rahab, like Tamar, also not of Israel, not a Jew, Gentile. Rahab is a prostitute. And she's included in Jesus' family tree. Then there's Ruth. Wonderful story, Ruth. Ruth, who is a nobody, who has nothing. She's included and grafted in to Israel, God's people, Old Testament people, and now also part of Jesus' family tree. And then verse 6. Then you've got Bathsheba. But she's not called Bathsheba here. Did you notice in verse 6, how is she referred to? The wife of Uriah. Here is someone who was taken from somewhere else, taken from Uriah. And David, King David of all people, has this in his life. And now this appears in Jesus' family tree. What is that telling us? It's showing us that Jesus comes into a family that's got baggage. Jesus comes into a family, born into a family that has history and baggage and sin and skeletons in the closet and all sorts of things that perhaps we would not want to be put out there in our family tree, in the Bible, on the screen, for the world to see. Jesus comes into a world, into a family that is not unlike yours and mine. He doesn't come into the perfect family for perfect people. He comes into the family of all sorts of messed up people like you and me. He comes into a family, into a history. I've got a history. You've got a history. He comes into that history gladly for people with that history. It's like that old carol that we're going to sing at the end of this sermon. O holy night, long lay the world 
in sin and in error, pining. That's my life. That's your life. A long life, it feels like I've just... I sorted out one problem, I got another one. A long life of sin and error pining. Till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. Here we see Jesus come for sinners. For messed up people. For cheaters. For murderers. For idolaters, for all sorts of people. Now, some of us might think, "Well, that's not me. That's not, I am. I am well sorted out. Thank you very much. I am not like those people over there." Well, Jesus met people that said that. And they're called Pharisees. And Jesus comes for the sick. He comes for the embarrassed. He comes for the people who feel their shame. Perhaps it's even a secret shame because you have spent most of your life showing everyone else that you're all sorted out and deflecting or showing, well, you're the people who got the problem because I'm actually pretty good, I'm okay. And you'd never want anyone to know that deep, dark secret that you kind of hide. Jesus comes for you. He comes for the shamed, the embarrassed. And he comes, which... For many of our world would say this Christmas season, well, this looks like an embarrassing birth, though. Have a look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, we read that, and that's, you know, some of us are used to that, but hear this. How is the normal way someone's born into the world? Like, if you had to explain that to your growing up children. If you've ever had to do that, we've just started. So we've got a nine-year-old in our home, We've just started to explain this. The birth of you took place this way. Right? can be awkward if it's your first time as a parent. (laughs) Uh, We're explaining to our nine-year-old because he'd been asking questions. And he sat there on the edge of his bed because his siblings were asleep. It was time for him to learn. And he was stunned. And Dad, me, was saying, oh, how's this going? It's my first time at this. And we said, buddy, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? And he said, I've got so many questions. (laughs) And I internally went, and then he said, how are waves formed? I said, oh, (laughs) yeah, let me tell you, let me explain. Um, it's not, we know the normal way. We, have, we teach our children, we explain it. This is how God has made things. So when we read verse 18, remember the expectation. This is the, this is the birth of Jesus Christ, took place in this way. Great, normal way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, fine, we're going well so far. Before they came together, understandably, she was found to be with child, interesting, by the Holy Spirit. What? Uh, say that again, or oh, we will, because we'll need to hear it again. And verse 19, so will Joseph. See, we get so used to the nativity story, don't we? Oh, yeah, of course, you know. It's like explaining Santa Claus to those who don't believe in Jesus. It's totally fine. There's someone that wears a suit and just 
travels the whole world in one night. We can't even get Qantas to get that right. Delivering your luggage. Sorry if you love Qantas. It's not an anti-ad. You know, we, we tell a Santa Claus story. Well, we don't, but some people do. Tell the Santa Claus story, and we think that's, that's fine. And I think we tell the nativity story in the same way. Like, you know, it's almost like a, a nice little fairy tale. It wasn't a fairy tale to Joseph, because Joseph was not expecting that. Getting married to Mary, I'm pregnant. This is an embarrassing birth in its day. It's embarrassing for Joseph. Have a look at Joseph's response. We're not told, and we looked at this passage in our men's breakfast yesterday, it was really encouraging actually as the men got together and discussed this. Because we're not told how long this is, verse 19, but verse 19 seems to include, as someone mentioned yesterday, a long time. It wasn't just a moment. He didn't have half an hour, 20 minutes to think about this. He's thinking about this for a while. And her husband, verse 19, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He's thinking about this. What am I going to do? I'm supposed to marry her? But she's told me that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What? I mean, what's she hiding? This is an embarrassing birth. Often when I'm talking with my atheist friends, I've got one atheist friend particularly, um, and he would laugh at this and say, oh, that's so old, that's so Victorian era. The issue is they weren't married. People do this all the time. They're just cohabitating and they're having kids. What's the problem? And I want to say, friend, look closely at what is being said here. Joseph is not... Look, okay, this has happened to us, we'll just get married. The issue is not that they're having children before they're married. The issue is, it looks like, particularly Joseph, who knows I had no part in this, it looks like, well, perhaps she's cheated on me. It's embarrassing for him. But now look at the evidences of grace. He's a just man, he's a godly man. He does not want to shame her. This could go one of two ways. See, in the Old Testament era, these, these folks live in that period before the change of the way the, the, the nation of Israel is seen and the civil law. In that period, if it is these two have had a child, not yet married, well, the law is, Joseph, you've got to marry her and, and make sure she's cared for. But if it is, so if that's the story that he's going to let go out, that's what happens. But he knows if it is that she has, in this way, committed adultery, well, that could more be more of a stoning situation. This is not going to play out well, whichever way it goes. So Joseph's thinking about this. You can imagine, he's, he's, he's losing sleep. And he resolves the only way out of this is to quietly divorce her. I don't want harm for her. I don't want shame. Resolve quietly. He's losing sleep, but eventually he does go to sleep. And that's when a messenger, an angelos, an angel of the Lord comes. My friend, my atheist friend says, this looks like a fairy tale. 
And I want to point out, actually, the embarrassing birth, the way Joseph responds, brings more historical authenticity to this event than anything else could. Because it shows Joseph is taking this seriously. Joseph's not gullible. It is not normal for babies to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's not normal. This is abnormal. This is miraculous if it's true. And an angel comes and says, Joseph, this is true. It's so historically authentic that it dogs Jesus' life and ministry. In John 8, Jesus is having a bit of a tussle, a verbal tussle with the Pharisees. There's a bit of argy-bargy with words going on. Jesus, of course, is gentle, meek and mild as he is, and gently saying, you guys, you legalists, you need the gospel. You need Jesus. You need me. You need me to show you what the Bible's all about. At one point, they say, hey, Abraham's our father. We, in John chapter 8, you can look this up, we were not born in sexual immorality. What are they saying? You see the little barb they're putting there? We heard your story. Your mum said, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. That dogs Jesus' ministry. They continually accuse him of this very thing. But this is true. Not only is it historically authentic, it's given testimony to angels, shepherds, wise men. I actually think, a lot of scholarship would agree, it seems like when Matthew writes this, he perhaps had Joseph in the room. Because Joseph is saying, this is how it was. This is what I felt. This is what I resolved. And Joseph is confused at this point. Yet he's compassionate and he's obedient. For he receives news. Have a look what sort of news this is. Verse 20. That as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting how he says, the angel says, Joseph, son of David? David had his, David had his own scandal, didn't he, of life, the way Solomon was born, Bathsheba, all that sort of business. Joseph, son of David, this baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, what sort of news is this now? This is actually really good news. This is gospel This ain't no natural conception, Joseph. It's supernatural. Don't fear to take her as your wife. You two are going to bring the saviour of the world into the world. By the natural way of birth, he is the serpent crusher. He is the offspring, son of Eve, son of Adam, son of Abraham, son of David. Yes, your son, Joseph, but he is God the son. He is God with us. He's Emmanuel. The prophecy of Isaiah comes true. Again, going back to our atheist friends. Our atheist friends say, well, being born 
of the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Some of us think that these things, you know, people will just believe anything these days. People then and people today, it's just some sort of miracle story. As an apologist, his name is Glenn Scrivener, and he wrote this, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. The one that we believe has historical authenticity in every way. And biologically, Jesus is not Joseph's son. What's the genealogy for? To show he is in the line of God's promises. And his name is Jesus. For the God's promises since the beginning, people need saving from their sins. That's the big issue. So he's named Jesus. Names mean a lot, don't they? I don't know if you've ever named anything before. Perhaps some of us have named children. Um, some of us name a pet. Perhaps you make a Lego creation and you name it, or you do a drawing and you name it. Naming something is significant, isn't it? Names are significant. As I said before here, my name is Russ, short for Russell. You can just call me Russ. And Russ is not very significant as a name. It just means I'm sly like a fox. That's what the word Russell means. Interestingly, um, we at times, we've been praying for Ukraine and we pray uh, for even Russian soldiers who are sent to a war they don't want to fight in. And every time we do that publicly on the live stream, someone, whether, you know, I'm, t- I'm not techie, so someone tells me it's either a bot or it's actually someone out there listens to it. I don't know why you'd bother listening to that whole thing and, and writes, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, Russia's going to win this war, blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm tempted to say, well, if, if the word Russia, you know, this is a bit of a diversion now, but if the word Russia is picked up like that by some bot somewhere, let me just say the word Russ, Russell, is related to the word Russia. It means red or sly like a fox. Russ, 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 Russ. There you go. Write to us now. My name is just Russ. It doesn't mean anything great. The reason I'm called Russ is my dad, in the small town I grew up in, saw the chemist was Russ Miller Chemist and said, what a great name for a son. So I was going to be called Russ Miller Chemist. No, just joking. Just the Russ part. But sometimes names are significant, aren't they? Sometimes names do mean something. We name things for significance. And Jesus' name does mean something because this one will save us from our sins. And he's got another name here which comes from that quote in Isaiah we heard read earlier. He'll save us because he's God with us. The name Jesus is the New Testament version of Joshua, which means God saves. God saves, and how is he going to save us? He becomes one of us. That's how he saves us. This is the fulfillment of the ages. That quote from Isaiah is quoted here in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew quotes it, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that means everything for us. It means everything for us because sin is always everything is the problem relates to sin. We need God to come and save us from our sins. 
Think about life and where it goes. It always ends in death. Always. We said it before from this pulpit. What is the death rate for humanity at the moment? It currently still hovers around 100%. Death is here because sin is here. Judgment is deserved because sin deserves judgment. I will die and face judgment for my sin and without anyone intervening in that inevitability, I have not got a hope in hell. Except God is with us. That's my hope. That's what I fix all of my hope and my affections upon. The fact that God sees our sin and becomes one of us to save us. Sin is a real problem. We won't think it's a problem unless we see how good and holy God is. But when we see how good and holy God is, and we see how I am not good and holy, I am not so set apart like him, we see the gulf between us, he crosses the gulf, I can't, he comes to become one of us. This Christmas time, the reason I'll get cranky at the end of Christmas Day is not because I'm just a cranky person. It's because of my sin. It's not just because I get tired. I know we do often blame that. I'm cranky. I'm acting up this way. Why are you cranky? Ah, it's just I'm tired. Well, sometimes that is a factor, but it's not the main reason. The reason you get cranky at Christmas time is because of sin. See, even in our sin, what do we do with sin? We, we actually pass the blame. The reason I'm cranky is because you're like this. The reason I'm cranky is because I'm tired like this, because you made me, or whatever it is. No, it's not. The, that, the problem is sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. The reason our life often spirals out of control is not because you're not organized enough. Sometimes organization helps. It really does. And there's Bible books to look at that if you need some help. But it's not the main reason. We don't need another CEO to organize our lives better. And then if we just organize our lives better, we'd have a better relationship with God. God doesn't send a CEO. He sends a shepherd to die for the sheep. Jesus doesn't come to save us from the symptoms of a sinful world. He comes to save us from the deep abiding sickness that kills us forever, sin. So it's not you call him Jesus because he will help us when we couldn't help ourselves. He's not you call him Jesus because he'll help you get your life sorted out and in order. And you know, his name is Jesus because he will save you from sin. And he'll do that because he's God with us. If you're a sinner, and I do hope that of all things you can see clearly, even through bleary, weary eyes, that you could see this morning that I can see this. I am a sinner. And if you're a sinner, what do sinners need to do? Look for rescue. 
if you're drowning in the ocean, perhaps this Christmas time you get to go to the beach. You know, uh, we had a holiday mid-year and we went to the beach. Now, if you go to the beach in Australia in the winter, what's it like? Well, so much so that our four-year-old kept saying, can we have a holiday and go to a normal beach one day? Because we went to the winter, the beach in the winter, and you know, it was cloudy and stormy and pouring rain. They put their parkas on, their gumboots, and they ran into the surf and stayed there all day and shivered to bits. But if you go to the beach this summer, and that's a blessing you get to enjoy, swim between the flags, listen to the lifeguards, and if you get stuck, and I pray that is not you, but if you do, and I don't know what it's like to be pulled out in a rip that I just I can't manage, what do you need at that point? Can someone throw me a manual on how to get out of this rip? I saw it once on the back of a Wheatbix box. Someone got a Wheatbix box? Hey, can someone give me a, um, some sort of advice here? Can you shout it out from the beach? That would really help. What should I do? You don't need a manual. You don't need just advice. You need a rescuer. I need a rescue. I need someone to come and rescue me. That's the problem of sin. We are so caught in the rip. We can't get out of it. I don't need advice. I need rescue. Pull me up out of it because I'm hopeless and helpless. That's what he does. When we could not swim out of our sin, he drops in beside us. He is God with us and he grabs us and pulls us out. God has come to save us from our sins by taking on sin himself by taking the shame, your shame, on himself. He got mocked because of the story about his mum and dad. That's not the big thing he takes to the cross. He takes what you have in your life that's shameful and he takes it to the cross. And he gets mocked and beaten and crucified. He's born to die that way, to take your sin. So this news of a baby being born, it's not just maternity ward kind of news. Oh, it's a cute little baby. And some shepherds came. That's lovely. And the wise men came with gifts. Oh, it's, it's very cute. No, it's much more than that. This is news that rocks our world. This is news that nothing will be the same again now. God with us. See, God is in the room with us right now. It's weird, isn't it, when you think about it? When we have church together and we preach Jesus, we're actually talking about someone who's in the room with us. When we have morning tea together and we stay, please do stay for morning tea, get to know one another. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about someone who's with us in the circle because he dwells with us by his spirit in our hearts. He's here, right now. He's still with us. Which means this Christmas, everything's different. It really is. 
To start with, in a weary world, I think what this means for us this Christmas, here's the difference Jesus makes to Christmas. Firstly, friends, can the pressure be off? The pressure is off. Christmas too easily becomes a pressure to perform, to do the things the right way, the wider family way, the way that which the advertising tells us we need to be doing and acting and looking and feeling like. The pressure's off now. Because we've all got baggage hanging on our family trees, and if we're honest, the baggage includes me, and we live with shame, we wish we could clean, we live with wrong in our life, it sin so sticks to us, doesn't it? We all need hope, and now we need to know the pressure is off, I can't rescue myself, he came so I can be free. Secondly, I think it also means we of all people, the church, this place is a place of grace. We are people that are saved by grace, not performance. And so we can now show grace to one another. Your performance doesn't matter here. You don't need to pretend to be perfect here. You can actually say how I'm really going here. Your life doesn't have to be presented like a well-placed Instagram picture. It just needs to be, turn up, I'm weary, I need rescue. And you can be loved and shown grace here. Which means you can come with all your embarrassment and history, your shame, your sin, your suffering, and know that God is with you. He's with us. And we're with one another. I love this about Matthew's Gospel. We track Jesus' life from his birth. He loves people. He ministers to them. He gets down with the messy and the vulnerable and the abused and the hurt. And all those that appear in his family tree, he so aligns with. And then he dies on a cross, taking our sin and shame dealt with, rises again. And what are his last words in Matthew's Gospel? The one who's born to be God with us. What does he say at the end of Matthew's gospel? All authority on the heaven and earth has been given to me and I am with you to the end of the age. So what do we do next? What do we do at Christmas time? We keep doing what I think our church does so well. We invite others and we bring them. Come to the place of grace in Jesus. Jesus tells us, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm with you to the end of the age. Now go and make disciples of the nations. That's where the blessing of the nations, the promise to Abraham comes true. We go and make disciples of the nations. The Tamars, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Russes. Russ, 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 Russ. Even the bad people. We make disciples of the Russians, the Ukrainians. The ones who visit our community, our city, our, our Bendigo, we, the ones who are our neighbours, we invite them, we bring them, come to the place of grace. Jesus says, make disciples of the nations. That's what we do while we wait for his second coming. I mean, if Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, whatever he said next we should do, shouldn't we? That's the natural outcome. If he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, now go and do the hokey pokey. Well, we should do it. Do the hokey pokey and you turn around. If you don't know what I'm doing here, 
Let's talk later of morning tea. Maybe it's a cultural thing in Australia. Whatever Jesus said we do next, that's what we do. So he says, the natural outcome is this. I've saved you by grace. You don't have to earn this or pay it back. Come to the place of grace, which is his church, and receive grace and love and a new community. And thirdly, just keep, you get to keep doing that. You get to keep showing other drowning people in their sin. Here is Jesus. That's what we do. Let's pray. And let's do it over morning tea. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for sending your Son, God coming into the world, God with us, to save us from our sins. Oh, we so look forward to him coming back again. We wait in weariness for his second advent. And so we say together as we sing this next carol, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.